Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome to podcast number 98 and today is part two of the special Q&A with myself. So I get asked similar things all the time on social media. So I put it to you guys on my Instagram stories to ask me some questions so I could answer them on the podcast today. So in part two, I've chosen the top eight questions that I think would benefit so many of you and I'll be answering them all today on the potty. So if you uh, enjoy these Q&A episodes, please do leave me a positive rating or review so that I know and I can do more of them in the future. So very quickly, before we jump into today's podcast, it is brought to you by my premium coaching program, Lean Gut Mind Method. In this busy world, so many women struggle to prioritize their health and they constantly find themselves frustrated with no results. Lean Gut Mind Method Premium Coaching Service provides expertise, personalization, and a proven system of tools so that women find themselves empowered to live their best lives in a body that they choose. So if you're a female who struggles with fat loss, emotional eating and poor gut health and you are ready to change once and for all, let me and my team help you. Lean Gut Mind Method is the last nutrition program you will ever need to invest in and the first program you will see lasting and sustainable results from. Let us show you the way. Apply for my premium one-on-one coaching program at leangutmindmethod.com. Now let's get into our listener questions in part two of the Q&A podcast. So first question, question one is how do I stop my weekend binge sessions? So I think the first thing to really identify and appreciate is that if it's true binge eating disorder, you absolutely need to enlist the help of a psychologist. But I know a lot of people use this sort of term binge eating, uh, I guess, to mean sort of like overeating and eating sort of large amounts of food, whereas a true definition of binge eating is a disorder. It is an eating disorder and it absolutely requires the help and assistance of um, a qualified professional like a psychologist. So if you're meaning more, and I'm going to take it in the context that you're meaning just overeating on the weekend and sort of ruining your progress during the week versus, you know, you're consuming massive portions of food, you're making yourself physically ill, you're having blackout sessions, you can't remember doing that. Um, And this is sort of something that happens very regularly. Um, I would absolutely encourage you to go and see your doctor or a psychologist if that was the case. But if this is more just, I guess, that overeating on the weekends or eating a little bit too much where you kind of feel a bit sick or just kind of riding off the weekend, having those sort of cheat weekends, the first strategy that I would give you guys is what I call my 10% better philosophy. So you've got to remember that true progress isn't about perfection. If we're chasing perfection, we're essentially, we're setting ourselves up to fail to begin with. So 10% better means that we just kind of put one foot in front of the other and just aim for that little bit of progress. Because the minute we aim for that little bit of progress, momentum kicks in and it makes it so much easier to go from 10% to 20% to 50% to 90%. So we're not aiming to have a perfect weekend, but we're aiming for each meal to just be a little bit better and progress just that little bit. So every Every week, 
most people will eat, you know, three main meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, one, two, three snacks a day. The majority of us have 50 plus opportunities every single week to nourish our body. And if you thought about the weekend or for most people where they're having these big sessions of overeating, it sort of lasts from Friday night right through to Monday morning. That could be, you know, 10 to 20 opportunities that you're ruining or writing off um, just because you feel like it's the weekend or you're like, I deserve a treat or, you know, um, I can't be bothered making any progress. I've done so well during the week. So I want you to think about how many opportunities you have to nourish your body versus just trying to be perfect and quote unquote, clean eat all weekend. So that's one of my first strategies. And the other one is to have a routine and structure for the weekend. So many of us have such great structure during the week. Like, you know, we have our breakfast at a certain time after we wake up and we do our exercise, then lunch during the working week is, you know, planned out around, I don't know, 12 or one o'clock and then dinner is pretty similar time each day. That routine and structure for so many of us goes completely out the window on the weekend. And that's why so many of us struggle. So what I would encourage you to do, and this is really going to help in terms of, um, getting into a really good sleep-wake cycle as well so you're not feeling exhausted when you wake up on a Monday is to go to bed and wake up at similar times even on the weekend. Most of us might do sort of a 6 a.m. wake up Monday to Friday and go into bed, I don't know, by 10 p.m. But on the weekends, we're staying up till 11 p.m., 12 p.m., you know, 1 a.m. And then we're not getting up till sort of 8, 9, 10 a.m. in the morning. And sleep-ins are great, don't get me wrong, but the body works best on a regular cycle, particularly when you're wanting to feel well-rested. So we need that similar routine and structure on the weekend that we have during the weekday. So same deal like we want to be sleeping and waking at similar times on the weekend. We also want to be eating at similar times on the weekend that we do during the week. So if you generally eat breakfast around six or seven o'clock, don't hold off on that or skip breakfast entirely on the weekend and then get to sort of 10, 11 o'clock, realize that you're completely famished and then eat half the pantry. So I think that's where so many of us go wrong is that when we don't have that dedicated structure on the weekend, we're not really tuning in and being mindful and saying, hey, you know, when am I starting to feel hungry? We hit the point where we're almost like starved and it's too late. We're like raiding the fridge or raiding the pantry for some food, or we're just constantly grazing all weekend long versus actually eating, um, better balanced structured meals. So that's another, um, I guess thing that I see with a lot of my coaching clients as well is that they're doing a lot of grazing over the weekend versus actually eating um, properly built, you know, nutritious meals. Um, And then another strategy is of course, mindful eating. So I feel like a lot of overeating happens because uh, we're not being mindful. We're distracted. We're eating while we're watching TV. We're eating while we're scrolling Facebook. We're eating while we're replying to our emails. And it makes it really difficult for our brain to process the fact that A, we've even had food and B, we're satisfied from that food if we're not being aware that we're even putting that food into our body. So try your best on the weekends to, if you're eating or if you're snacking, turn off the TV, get off your phone, get off social media and really pay attention to your food. This The practice of mindful eating is a wonderful one and it can honestly it can just change your whole relationship with food. So that's what I would really recommend. Um, If there was two top things to prevent weekend overeating, I would recommend having a routine and structure and practicing mindful eating. And then my final, final one, which I've probably touched on a few times on this potty is to 
not allow yourself like a cheat day or a cheat weekend. Absolutely, treats and soul foods are 100% okay, but don't write off the entire day just because you've been so good during the week and you're like, I'm going to have Saturday and Sunday off because I deserve it. Or, you know, I lost a kilo or two during the week. I've done so well. I'm going to reward myself or treat myself on the weekend. It's not a great, I guess, mindset to get into because a lot of what happens on a cheat day or a cheat weekend is that we consume these absorbent amount of calories, which almost like negates all the hard work that we've done during the week. So on Monday, it's almost like we're starting again. So I would encourage you to get out of that sort of cheat day, cheat weekend mindset and just say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to have some nourishing meals this weekend. I'm going to have a bit of routine. I'm going to have a bit of structure, but I'm also going to allow myself to have a couple of treats and a couple of soul foods as well. There's no reason that you can't have, you know, a bit of wine and a cheese platter, but also have a nourishing chicken salad for lunch that day. There's no reason that you can't have some great overnight oats for breakfast and then have, um, you know, some pizza with some friends for lunch and then back it up with a tofu stir fry for dinner on Sunday. Just because you had a couple of treat meals or some soul foods doesn't mean that the next meal also has to be written off because quote unquote, you've already ruined your weekend. Try to get out of the mindset of I'm going to start again on Monday. I'm going to eat healthy on Monday and remember how many wonderful opportunities you have during the weekend to nourish your body and put some good food into your body. When we flip it to think about it from a positive um, aspect, it, it really it's much more encouraging and it makes it easier to do when we think, you know what, I have all of these opportunities versus I have to do this. Like I have to eat healthy versus I have the opportunity to put healthy food into my body. I think it's just the way that we, we talk about it and what we say to ourselves, which I think is really powerful and can put us in a really positive um, mind frame as well. So they're my tips to prevent weekend overeating. Um, and I really hope that you guys resonated with at least one, if not two or three of them. Um, and I hope that that helps you out. Question two, how do you maintain a healthy lifestyle as a couple? My partner is so unhealthy. How do you support David and how does he support you to live a healthy lifestyle? Okay, I think this is a great question and I feel for you like I I think it's so hard when we don't have that support from our loved ones. So the first thing I would say is that for David and I, a healthy lifestyle is both a priority. So I didn't sort of change him when I met him. He was already quite fit and healthy. Um, we were already sort of both living our healthy lifestyle. So when we met each other, um, that was something that we both loved and we both enjoyed. So one of the hardest things to do, and this is what they told us in it must have been like the first year of nutrition and dietetic school was you cannot change the ones you love. The people that you love are the hardest people to change. They have to want to change. And that's the the perfect example where my mum and myself and my siblings all nag my dad for probably 20 years to give up smoking nearly on a daily basis. And then one day we were like, you know what, like, it's just not worth it. Like he's never going to quit. And then I think maybe six months, 12 months after that, he just quit cold turkey. Didn't tell anyone, didn't do it. We didn't even realize he'd kind of, he'd quit. He's nearly, I think two years, um, hasn't had a cigarette in nearly two years after I think, you know, nearly 40 years of smoking. So he just made that decision one day that enough was enough. And I asked him one day, I said, what made you want to change? And he said, I just got sick of it. I got sick of not being able to breathe, getting puffed when I walk up the stairs, getting sick every winter. And he said, enough was enough. I just had to change. And he said, no amount of nagging could have ever made you guys change me. I had to want to do it for myself. So that's the biggest thing with living with somebody who doesn't embody that healthy lifestyle like you. It's really difficult to change them. They have to want to do it. So what I would encourage you to do 
is to model good behaviors, model good behaviors so that they want to change, make healthy food fun, make it delicious, make exercise fun so that they want to join in with you as well. If you don't want to go to the gym or go out for a walk together, do something fun, go roller skating, go um, rock climbing, go scuba diving. I don't know, whatever it is, just try to be active in a really fun way. And then um, if you're modeling those good behaviors, often people, they want what you have. They're like, oh, you know, that Sarah girl, she's so full of life. She She's bubbly. She's fun. She's got so much energy. I wonder what she's doing. Like, I want a bit of that as well. So when we model good behaviors, it tends to rub off on our loved ones as well. So that is what I would encourage you to do. And also with your partner, make social things and you and make your dates fun. So make it fun, make it about fitness, make it about health. So perhaps on the weekend, Rather than just going out to brunch together, start your morning, start your Saturday morning with a hike, then go out to brunch. Or rather than just doing your Sunday meal prep, which for a lot of couples, you know, it might be quite boring to do, do your Sunday meal prep and then treat yourself and go out to the movies. Um, so make those social things and the dates that you have together and the time that you're spending together, make it a blend of fun, fitness and health. Because even if health and fitness isn't a priority for them, if they're your partner and they love you, which you know they should, let them know how important it is for you to be able to do these things. So ask for their support. And I think that's often what we forget is that we think, you know, our partner's not interested in this. Um, they can't support me in it. But that is not true because I support David in so many things that I have zero interest in because I know that they're important to him and that he loves them. So if if your partner truly loves you, they will support you on something or with something. So they'll support you to live a healthy lifestyle, even if it's not something that's important to them perhaps right now. So have that honest discussion with them and say, hey, look, this is a priority for me. I know that it might not be one of your favorite things in the whole world to go for a hike on the weekend or to do some meal prep, but it would mean the absolute world to me if you were able to do that with me, help me out with that, because it is a really big priority for me in my life right now. And then I'm happy to return that favor and support you in something else that you're doing in your life. So I think that it's not about trying to change somebody and make them healthier. It's almost about leading by example, um, modeling good behaviors and making sure that your partner knows that it's a top priority for you and that, you know, they love you and they really need to support you in this, even though it might not be a priority for them, because it's so important that you receive their support in order to succeed in this really crucial area of your life. So I hope that that helps you um, understand, I guess, how David and I were a bit different because we were both living a healthy lifestyle, but there are so many things that we do together that he's not really interested in terms of what I love. And then I'm not interested in terms of what he does, but we support each other in that way anyway, because we realize that it, or we recognize it's a priority for each other. Um, and we're very supportive in that same fact. So it sort of, um, I guess, crosses over between, between that thing in terms of supporting your partner or, or when you're in a relationship, supporting each other to, I guess, be the best versions of yourselves and help each other thrive in the areas that um, are important to both of you. Brings me to question three. So for a mum with a desk job, what is the best exercise to do for weight loss if I only have 30 minutes maximum a day? All right, this is a great question because I get asked this one a lot, guys. And I will always say I'm not an exercise professional. So this question isn't really about exercise. Um, the part that I picked up on this question was really about fat loss. And one of my favorite sayings is that nutrition is king exercise is queen and together they make a kingdom. So I think a lot of people forget or they overemphasize exercise and they underemphasize nutrition. If your goal is purely fat loss or purely weight loss, you need nutrition. 
You cannot out-exercise a bad diet with just 30 minutes of exercise a day. You can purely lose weight through good nutrition. You do not need to exercise to drop fat mass. That is all about nutrition. I'm not saying that you shouldn't exercise at all. Of course, I'm advocating for exercise. Exercise is absolutely wonderful for us. It helps with our stress management. It helps us sleep better. Um, It helps with our bone mineral density. It's so important for our overall health. But I'm just saying that purely for fat loss, (laughs) nutrition is absolutely key. And it's something that so many of us forget. So if you only have 30 minutes a day, put your pure focus on nutrition for fat loss and use that 30 minutes a day that you have to do something that you enjoy when it comes to exercise. That 30 minutes should be enjoyable. It's 30 minutes that you have away from your kids, your family, your job. That's 30 minutes for you. Use that time for enjoyment, not to burn the most amount of calories. Exercise is so good for our mental health. It's so good for socializing. Like Go catch up with a friend and grab a takeaway coffee and go for a walk around the park. Exercise helps us sleep better. It helps us regulate stress better. Use exercise for those positive benefits, not to burn calories. Because the big thing that I see or the big reason so many people go wrong in their fat loss journey is because they're overemphasizing exercise. They're eating a subpar or a crappier diet, and they're trying to compensate with that through exercise. That's not the way we should be burning fat. The way we should be burning fat is by nutrition. And then exercise should be like the icing on the top because it helps us sleep better. It's good for socializing. It's great for our mental health. It's good for our bone mineral density. It's good for our you know, cardiac output and our heart. That's what we should be focusing on from an exercise perspective. And we want to be doing the type of exercise that we love. If I say to you, like, you know, strength training is really important, but you hate strength training or you hate the gym, it's just not something that's going to last long term. So you absolutely have to find the type of exercise that you love long term and do that. That's 30 minutes that you have as a busy mum that is totally to yourself without kids nagging you or saying, mum, mum, can I do this? Help me with this. I'm hungry. That's your own 30 minutes. So use that to, to do something that you actually enjoy every single day. So you finish that session and you feel wonderful and you're on a high from all of those endorphins. Question four, does dairy block the absorption of antioxidants like polyphenols and flavonoids in green tea and cacao? So this is a really interesting question. And when I looked at the research, the the research in the studies is quite interesting as well. So there were some studies that found that dairy products may reduce the antioxidant absorption of some foods and beverages. But there were also other studies that failed to find this effect at all. And there were other studies that actually showed a positive impact on dairy and antioxidants as well. So the theory from the studies that found that it may reduce the absorption of antioxidants was because the protein found in dairy products um, is called casein. So casein could bind with the antioxidants in foods and drinks. Therefore, this blocked the absorption or reduced the effectiveness of the antioxidant in that food. But I think it's really important to note that even in these studies where the antioxidant capacity was found to be reduced, it wasn't necessarily eliminated. It wasn't like there was no antioxidants found in that food. It was just the antioxidant capacity was reduced within that food. So say as an example, if that food when you paired it with a dairy contained 20% less antioxidants, you're still getting 80% of the benefit. Like you're still getting 80% beneficial antioxidants in that food. And keep in mind that a lot of these foods with antioxidants in them are really healthy choices. Um, Additionally, I think it's really important to note that there were no studies that examined whether actually consuming dairy with 
high antioxidant foods was associated with a negative effect on health. So there were no studies that said this is actually bad or this has a negative effect on your health. There were just the studies that says that it reduced the absorption of the antioxidants. So bottom line here, I think that it's really important to remember that it may reduce the absorption of some antioxidants, but you're still probably going to get a really nice boost of antioxidants. So you've got a couple of different options. You can continue to have your dairy with your antioxidant type foods, such as um, you know in your chocolate or in your tea or in your coffee, or you could use something like a plant-based milk. Um, and don't forget if you're using plant-based milks, make sure that they're fortified with um, nutrients, particularly calcium, or you can drink your tea and coffee without any at all. So something that I love to do is English breakfast is one of my favorite types of tea. I love that with just a normal, a splash of normal cow's milk. I think it tastes the best this way and it's the most enjoyable way I can drink it. I have every other type of tea basically plain. So I'll have green tea just with hot water, peppermint tea just with hot water, even hot chocolate. I'll either have that just plain like with hot water um, or I'll add a small dash of like plant milk into my hot chocolate. So you can do a kind of a blend where in some of your teas and coffees and drinks, you add a little bit of dairy-based milk and in other ones, you don't add any milk at all, or you could use a little bit of plant milk as well. But I really think that as long as you're eating a wide diversity of um, different types of plants and whole grains and nuts and seeds and legumes and that sort of thing in your diet, you're going to get a wide range of antioxidants um, from so many different foods. So I guess I wouldn't get too hung up on the dairy and the absorption of antioxidants in just simple things like tea and coffee. Um, But where possible, if you wanted to, you could try drinking um, a few of them just without any milk in them at all. um, And you'll probably get the maximum amount of antioxidant benefit from that. But as I said, some of the studies even showed a positive impact when dairy was paired with antioxidants. So I think the jury is probably still out in terms of that research and we just, we need a little bit more research and a little bit, I guess, better quality studies um, to really know a definitive answer on, on that question. So I hope that that was helpful, but my thing is always have as much diversity in your diet as possible. So rather than always drinking your tea and coffee and your hot chocolate the exact same way, rotate it up a little bit. It's not going to hurt you. And, and I think a little bit of diversity always does the body good. Question five. How did you manage calories while pregnant? Do you eat intuitively or do you track while you're pregnant? So I wasn't tracking before I fell pregnant, so I'm not tracking now. So I found that quite an easy transition. I wasn't really doing it beforehand, so I'm not doing it now. But I will stress that pregnancy is absolutely not the time to track calories because honestly, for most people, you feel so rubbish for the first 12, for me, it was up to 15, 16 weeks. Most people are lucky to even get in enough calories overall in the first trimester, um, let alone actually be able to track that and, you know, track your calories and track your macros. For me, I had quite a lot of nausea and this just gross metallic taste in my mouth. So it was quite easy for me to get in calories because the way that I found was the easiest to manage my nausea was to just constantly eat and constantly snack. So for me, it was all about the salty carbs, the carbs, the carbs, and more carbs. And that lasted till probably at least around about week 15. And then after about 15, 16 weeks, um, the nausea started to subside a bit and that that metallic taste sort of left from my mouth. And I was able to build much, um, 
I guess, easier balanced meals. So I would definitely encourage all people trying for a baby and, and while you're pregnant and even in that postpartum period to continue to eat as intuitively as possible. I just think tracking your calories and macros is going to do nothing but add a just external pressure to you when there's so much pressure for you to do so many things already, like, um, you know, try to conceive a baby or try to grow a baby or try to look after a baby. There's so much pressure to do those things that I wouldn't encourage you to add any extra pressure to yourself. So I'm definitely eating as intuitively as possible. Um, I have weighed myself a few times um, throughout my pregnancy just to make sure that A, I'm gaining enough and B, I'm not gaining too much. So I'm about six months now and I put on about 10 kilos. So my OB is pretty happy with this. Remember, we're all different. So don't hear that number and think, oh, Leanne, six months and she's put on 10 kilos. I've only put on X or I've put on way more than that. Um, We're all different and we're all on this journey separately. So definitely check in with your OB or your health professional if you have any concerns that perhaps you've gained too much weight or perhaps you're not gaining enough. But honestly, for me, the bulk of that 10 kilo gain was probably in the first 15 weeks, just me trying to, you know, manage and navigate my nausea where I was just constantly eating and eating sort of quite higher calorie foods than I would normally eat because that's just the only thing that sort of prevented me from wanting to to bath most days. So it's not really an excuse. It's just the only thing that kind of got me through. And the first trimester is really hard. And I know that all the mums listening out there could, well, most of them could agree. And so you just do the best you can to get through that first trimester and fingers crossed that things sort of subside um, a little bit from there. But there are, you know, so many mums um, and pregnant ladies who struggle with that morning sickness or even just that all day sickness Um, the entire pregnancy. So if that's you and you're struggling, please, please go and have a chat with your OB or your doctor. Um, Get a referral to a dietitian because there are a lot of different things, including medication that um, they can give you to help manage nausea, to help you stay well hydrated and just just get a little bit of extra nutrition on board as well. So, you know, um, as I mentioned, after the 15 weeks, sort of um, the nausea subsided a bit, I was able to build much more balanced meals. So instead of tracking what I do and what I recommend um, you would do, or um, people listening to this podcast might do if they're if they're currently pregnant, is just try to ensure that your main meals are as balanced as possible. So you want a good serve of lean protein. You want a good serve of um, high fiber based carbs. You want a serve of healthy fats. And of course, we want to aim for as much as possible about half our plate filled with salad and vegetables. Um, snacks are sort of things where some days I want fruit and some celery with almond butter. Other days I just want some chocolate and, um, you know, a scotch finger biscuit or something like that. So I'm not too concerned about my snack intake, but I'm really focusing on getting in three sort of good, healthy meals every single day. And I know that I'm getting the bulk of my nutrition through those good uh, meals as well. And I'm also taking a, um, pregnancy multivitamin, um, of course, in the very beginning with folate added. And the one I've got now has a little bit of extra iron added as well. Um, and some amino Omega three, which is good. So, um, pregnancy cravings is probably a whole nother topic entirely. But I will say, just so you guys understand and know that I'm human as well, I'm not immune to them. I've definitely found myself having a lot more cravings throughout pregnancy than I've ever had in my life. So, I'm absolutely allowing myself um, just the ability to have some extra soul foods, but still ensuring, as I said, I'm trying to eat at least one balanced snack a day and um, two to three balanced main meals a day. But I've definitely had my days where I've just had, um, you know, 
I don't know, two minute noodles for lunch and just like a piece of PB on toast for dinner or a piece of cheese on like white bread for dinner, because literally that's the only thing I could manage. So you've got to do what you've got to do to get you through. But I would definitely not recommend um, counting your calories or tracking your macros while you're pregnant, because I just think that that's going to put so much um, additional pressure on yourself when you're doing so much to try and grow this amazing human that I just don't think that that extra pressure is needed. Do the best you can to build balanced meals. Um, you don't have to be perfect, um, but just do the best that you can each day. And if you're struggling with your nutrition, this is where a great fertility or a pregnancy-based dietitian can be really helpful. And um, a lot of them offer sort of subsidized appointments through your OB or through your GP as well. Um, if um, budget sort of constraints are, are an issue for you as well. So just have a chat with your doctor and see if you can get a referral. If you're just confused around nutrition, particularly with things like food safety, um, particularly early on in the first sort of trimester or two, um, there's a lot of different food safety um, tips and tricks and I guess rules that you have, um, particularly here in Australia, and I'm sure around the rest of the world as well. Um, so there's, you know, food safety issues, there's making sure that you're getting um, enough of those nutrients. And of course, doing things um, to manage things like nausea um, and and vomiting as much as you can as well. So I think a referral to a dietitian if you're struggling or you're overwhelmed or you're confused um, would be a really, really um, great option. Alrighty, we have three questions to go. So question six, best tips for IBS sufferers. So uh, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, for our listeners, uh, who may not have heard about that before. It essentially is uh, where somebody has a hypersensitive gut. So I myself have um, struggled with IBS in the past. It's gotten a lot better in the last few years, but it is something that is um, and can be a very debilitating condition. So I actually did a really wonderful podcast episode with um, Chelsea, who is a Brisbane-based IBS specialist dietitian. So the episode was 95. It was only a few episodes ago. Um, and we talk all about what IBS is, how it's diagnosed, how we can manage it. So if you're, I guess, confused around what IBS is or how to manage it, please go and have a listen to that podcast with Chelsea. It's a really, really great one. And go and check out her socials as well. I think um, from memory, her socials are IBS underscore dietitian perhaps. So maybe just flick back to that episode 95 and it'll be in the show notes. So there are generally three types of IBS. We've got IBS-D, which is the diarrhea predominant IBS. We've got IBS-C, which is constipation predominant. And we've got what we call mixed IBS, where people suffer from both the diarrhea and the constipation. So some tips if you have IBSD, so you're more that diarrhea predominant type, um, you want to look at reducing things that increase your transit time. So the transit time is how quickly things move through and sort of like shoot out the other end. So things that speed up that transit time that we want to reduce are things like excessive amounts of alcohol and coffee. And for really sensitive people, it could just be that one coffee or one drink is enough to send them running to the bathroom. So it really does depend on your level of um, sensitivity, put it that way. High fat foods and takeaways and large amounts of ultra processed foods can generally set a lot of people off. Um, sugar and sugar free alcohols, which are in a lot of our like diet products, such as like sugar free chocolate, sugar free um, soft drinks, that sort of thing. Again, some people it can send them completely just running to the bathroom. So there's some tips where we'd want to sort of look at to start with reducing that load of things that increase our transit time for that diarrhea. And for some people, um, too much 
much fiber can actually make diarrhea worse as well. So perhaps looking at if you've got a super rich diet packed with fiber, perhaps you're living a plant-based lifestyle. You, you know, you think you're doing all of the right things, but sometimes just too much of that fiber can be a little bit too irritating. So we might want to just back off on that a little bit. Um, and on the flip side of that, IBS-C is our constipation predominant type of irritable bowel syndrome. So what we really want to look at here is fiber, fluid, and physical activity. So we want to look at boosting your overall fiber intake to, I would say for the majority of healthy adults, 30 grams at least of fiber a day. Um, the recommendations in Australia are 25 grams a day for women, but I personally think that that's too low. The majority of my clients are on 30 plus grams with IBS um, constipation predominant. But I will stress, if you're going to increase your fiber intake, please do it very slowly. Do this very slowly over a few weeks to a few months because your gut needs time to adjust to an increase in fiber. If you go super quickly, like if you work out that you're having I don't know, as an example, 10 grams of fiber and you whack that straight up to 30 grams the next day and do that consistently for the next week, you're likely to get just a hell of a lot of bloating and gas and just feel so uncomfortable because your gut and your bowel just needs time to adjust. So look at slowly increasing that fiber intake. And of course, when we increase fiber, we have to increase fluid as well. So if you go and whack up your fiber intake, but don't take in enough water, again, you're going to put yourself in a whole world of pain. So we want adequate amounts of um, fluid and adequate amounts of fiber. So our high fiber foods are things like our fruits and veggies. We want to keep the skin on where possible because a large bulk of the fiber is found in the skin and just underneath the skin. We want whole grains. We want nuts. We want seeds. We want legumes. Um, we've talked about water, so we definitely want more water to get things moving along with the fiber um, and as much exercise and movement as possible. So some sort of exercise or movement every day can be really beneficial for constipation predominant IBS. And also a good strong morning coffee can help a lot of people um, get things going in the morning and a consistent bowel routine. So it's it's funny how our bowel likes consistency. So we actually want to try and eat regularly at similar times most days because our bowels respond best to consistent nutrition. We don't want to have these huge periods of fasting where we don't eat for like 16 or 18 hours, then we smash whatever we are eating in like a six hour window. That is not going to do your IBS um, see any favors. I can promise you that. So try and have regular meals and regular snacks throughout the day. Try and have a good morning um, bowel routine where you just sit on the, the bathroom or sit on the toilet for, um, you know, at a similar time each morning, um, because that can really be helpful as well to get you into a, a sort of a good toileting routine. Our body really does like routines, particularly when it comes to um, irritable bowel syndrome. And then for mixed IBS, this is probably where it gets a little bit more complicated because you kind of need like the strategies for diarrhea predominant are sort of opposite to the strategies to constipation predominant. So if you've got mixed, you really do need some personalized strategies. So I would absolutely recommend booking in even regard any type of IBS, I would absolutely recommend booking in with a gut health specific dietitian or an IBS specific dietitian for some tailored strategies, because IBS is just one of those conditions where 
nothing really works the same for for every single person. Like what works for one has terrible side effects for somebody else. And and what works for somebody else, um, you know, isn't going to work for you and makes things a hell of a lot worse. So IBS is one of those things that is incredibly personalized. So again, I'd really encourage you to touch base with um, a dietitian and and just, you know, due to the nature of um, COVID-19 and that sort of thing, there are a lot of dietitians offering online consultations, um, even in things like group-based format or um, in courses as well, all around the world. So you'll definitely be able to find some great ones online, but I do recommend Chelsea who um, I interviewed on episode 95. As I said, she's Brisbane based, but she does some online work as well. Second last question for you guys is question seven. Can you talk about reds and nutrition, please? Of course. So I have previously, I think I just touched on Redis in three podcast episodes so far. So episode 23 on exploring eating disorders and thriving with Nina, um, episode 28, uh, which is on the five most common fat loss mistakes you're making with sports dietitian, Angelique Clark. And we also touch on Redis on podcast 60, which I did with dietitian Amy, which was on HA periods and fertility. So for our listeners at home who haven't heard of um, Redis, It stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and it's essentially the result of an insufficient calorie intake and or an excessive energy intake. So basically, you're burning more calories than you're taking in. So you're not eating enough and you're doing far too much exercise. So consequences of what we call this low energy condition can alter many physiological systems within our body. So these systems that can be altered include our metabolism, our menstrual function, our bone health, our immunity, protein synthesis, um, our cardiovascular system, and also our psychological health as well. So Redis as a concept was adapted from a previously um, identified syndrome that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of called the female athlete triad, where active women had low energy availability, they had menstrual dysfunction, and they had low low bone mineral density. So essentially, um, this syndrome was categorized for female athletes. But in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of emerging data that has shown that undernourished males and male athletes can also suffer from some of these things. Obviously not the menstrual dysfunction part, um, but the part about the low energy availability and the low bone mineral density. So they renamed um, the this dysfunction instead of the female athlete triad, it's now called relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, and it's a more comprehensive model, which basically depicts a low energy status in both physically active men and women. So I think it's a more inclusive term. Um, and so we don't sort of mention, I guess, female athlete triad as much anymore. It's really what we, what we talk about is Redis. So, um, yeah, I hope that gives you, I guess, an understanding of the background and lot, for a lot of the time, I think the, the the consequences that lead to the diagnosis or the events that lead to the diagnosis of REDS in an athlete is often a stress fracture. There's often some sort of injury or it's it's constant injuries or constant sicknesses. So um, REDS syndrome can be identified by, um, I guess, reduced performance, excessive fatigue, 
And for our females, missing those menstrual periods, particularly consistently or just being super, super irregular. Other symptoms of REDS include uh, weight loss or just being consistently underweight. Um, We talked about period stopping or being irregular, recurrent illnesses. So you're constantly sick. You've constantly got a cold. You've always got the flu. You pick up everything that goes around. You've got a decrease in your sports performance. So maybe you're training harder than ever, but you're actually getting worse. Like you're not making any gains. You're not getting any better. Better, despite training a lot harder. Um, there are some mood changes that could be going on. Um, if you're a child or a teenager, there could be delayed um, growth and development. You could also have iron deficiency and very severe symptoms of REDS um, can actually affect your heart and your cardiac system as well. So in terms of REDS in sport, how it affects performance is because you have this reduced energy availability to your muscles. And that leads to a more rapid onset of fatigue. So you're going to feel a lot more fatigue. You just won't be performing as well. So your muscle size and strength can often be reduced um, or compromised. And this is due to a number of factors, um, things like neuromuscular changes, cortisol changes, and reduced testosterone. So we've got this low energy availability. We've got more fatigue. We've got smaller muscles and less strength. Recovery is impaired because the body's ability to supply enough energy for subsequent training sessions when you're not giving it enough for even the one session it's going to be impeded um, particularly long term you've also you also need energy to adapt to your training so if there's low energy availability you don't get that growth and adaption you're going to constantly make those benefits and you're not going to get better and stronger and fitter and faster and and of course lastly when we think about performance there's that injury risk so poor energy availability you've got sprains, you've got strains, you've got bone injuries, you've got fractures, you've got things that won't heal. Um, You've got constant little niggles and aches and you're always constantly sore. So there are some ways that red ass can affect performance um, and how we treat it is essentially to address this mismatch between our energy intake and our energy expenditure. So this is really where a multidisciplinary team um, becomes really important. So we want a sports dietitian. We want a great doctor who understands this condition, someone like a sports GP. Um, we also need your doctor to understand your sport and the load of your training. Um, and we need your coach and also you as the athlete, we all need to work together to return you to um, optimal health and optimal performance during your training as well. And often what this looks like is um, eating more or just eating better quality food and reducing some of that training load in order to allow your body to just rest and heal and recover from the things that it's been through. And often that can make you come back at a later stage, fitter, faster, stronger. So if you're listening to this, if you've got kids at home, if you know anybody who their performance is being affected um, and they've got some of these symptoms, absolutely either point them in the direction of my podcast or link them in with a really good GP who can have um, a great conversation with them or even their coach. I think a lot of us, you know, there are a lot of PTs that listen to my podcast. These are things that we're working, particularly with young athletes or people who are performing at high levels within their sports. Um, These are things that we really need to think about. If you've got clients who are consistent 
consistently sick and injured. They've got low mood. Um, they're not growing or developing properly. You know, they mentioned they haven't had a period for months. They're losing weight, perhaps unintentionally, or you're putting them through this great training program that you've designed for them, but they're not making any progress. You kind of think to yourself, what is going on? So Redis is definitely something that um, we're seeing and hearing more and more about. So I really love this question because I think it brings to light a really important issue. And as I mentioned, I have touched on it a few times within the podcast, but I think that, or I hope that this little summary in question seven today helps um, our listeners understand a little bit more about Redis um, and um, perhaps helps helps us link in friends and family who may potentially um, be suffering from some of these red flags with the right um, professionals, such as sports dietitians, sports GPs, and finding really, really good coaches who are aware of um, some of these, um, I guess, symptoms as well. And our final question is question eight, how to stay motivated for busy mums at the end of the week. <laughs> this is a good one. And it's easy and not so easy. So let's jump into it. So I always like to say motivation is like a bath. It doesn't last. You have to do it daily. Most people, I think, wait for that motivation to come. And yeah, some days it's there and it's great and you're super motivated. You're like, yeah, let's do this. And other days you're like, man, I can't even be bothered getting off the couch. <laughs> so I think waiting for motivation um, isn't great. We don't want to wait for motivation. We want to have a clear goal, a clear direction, and a clear purpose. We want to have a plan. So planning, I always say, is the key to success. With motivation or with achieving your goals, let's stop talking about motivation because it's not really about motivation. It's about achieving your goals at the end of the at the end of the day or end of the week, right? You've got a goal and you want to get there. What you need to get there isn't motivation. It's a clear goal. It's a direction. It's a purpose and it's your why. So we want to understand why we want to achieve certain goals. And I always say that your why needs to be deeper than your excuses. If your goal is to lose five kilos, but you don't understand why, when push comes to shove or when you've had a long week or if you're a busy mum, you get to Friday, you're just going to let that go because it's not, you don't have a deep enough purpose or a deep enough why. That goal needs to be deeper than I just want to lose five kilos. And I always, I read this article once and I think it was, it was either six or eight times deeper. So you essentially ask yourself that why question six or eight times to come to your deeper purpose. So, okay, the goal is I want to lose weight. Why? Um, to feel better. Why? Because I'll be able to fit in my clothes better. Why? Because um, I'll, I don't know, have more confidence. Why? Because then I'll feel like um, I can make better decisions in my life. Why? Because then I can be a good role model for my kids. That's probably a really shockingly terrible example. Sorry, guys. But um, see if you can write down what your top level goal is and then go deeper three, four, five times to that. You need to have a purpose so deep that when you get to the end of the week, it's like, you know what, I'm exhausted. But the goal here is to prep a healthy dinner because I want to be the best mom I can and set the best example I can for my kids. That's what you need to hold on to. Not, I need to prep a healthy dinner because I need to lose weight. It's not going to last. You've had a busy, tired week and Uber Eats is calling your name. So you need to have a deeper purpose and a deeper why. You also want to have a really good support system around you. So use your partner, use your family, use your friends, join an online sort of support group or forum, use a friend and just text them, you know, each Friday and keep yourself on track, pay an online coach for accountability. You know, coaching is a real thing these days. We live in such a busy, fast paced world. We're expected to do 101 things. 
Even coaches need accountability. I'm a coach myself and I've had coaches myself in the past and I still to this day have coaches because we all need some accountability. I've also done a great podcast, uh, episode number 53, from memory, it's only about 12 or 13 minutes long. So it's about maintaining motivation and progress. And it really talks you through how it's not the motivation we should be looking for at the end of a long, hard week. It's about taking action and having that deeper purpose. So um, deeper purpose is something that I've said probably 50 times already in this question, but it really does need to be so much more than I want to lose weight for my friend's wedding, or I want to lose weight because um Uh, you know, I want to fit in that dress um, that I bought two months ago. Like it has to be more about where you see yourself in the future. And for me, my motivation comes from the fact that when I'm 60, 65, 70, I want to enjoy my retirement and my grandkids. I want to be able to go and hike a mountain somewhere overseas when I'm retired. I don't want to spend my entire life working to get to the point where I retire, where I've got all of these health conditions. I've got bad knees. I've got a bad back. I can't sit down for long enough because I haven't looked after my health properly. Like that's my deeper purpose. That's why I do what I do on a daily basis, because it means so much to me to be able to get to my retirement age and to be able to enjoy my retirement, to stay active, to be able to play with my grandkids and walk around pain-free and not have to take, you know, 13 different medications or pills or spend my life going back and forth between the hospital for visits to different, you know, professionals because I have so many different health conditions. That for me is my motivation. So when I get to Friday, and I'm not saying that it happens every week where, you know, maybe 10, 20% of the time I'll be like, oh, I'll just get takeaway and get Uber Eats. But 80 to 90% of the time I will cook a healthy, nourishing dinner because I hold on to the facts of this 60 year old me that wants to thrive in my retirement. That is my deeper purpose. That is my why. So that's how far or how deep I want you guys to think about it, not just short term, but long term. And I think a lot of it, um, it's easy to self-sabotage because you think, you know what, like, what am I now? I'm 32. It's like, well, I'm not going to retire till I'm what, 60, 65, 70. That's in like, you know, 30 years time. I don't need to do it today. But I remember my 10% better philosophy and how I said to you guys at the start of the podcast that every day or every week we have over 50 opportunities to nourish our body. I always come back to that and think, you know what, my goals might be 30 years away, but what I do now is going to take me closer to those goals in 30 years time. So it's about the little things that we do on a consistent daily basis basis that add up to our bigger goals long-term. Also structure and routine. So if you get to the end of a busy week and you're a mom and even if you're not a mom, even if you've just got a crazy busy job or you live a crazy busy life, we need a bit of structure and routine. So perhaps do a little bit of meal prep on a Wednesday. So you've got something healthy to just pull out of the fridge and heat up on a Friday afternoon or a Friday night, or perhaps do a little bit of meal prep on a Thursday night or make a double batch of, um, you know, whatever you're cooking for dinner on Thursday, make a double batch. You can also eat it on Friday or, um, you know, on Wednesday or maybe on a Monday night, make a double batch of something, put it in the freezer and you can bring it out and reheat it on a Friday. So you don't even have to cook. You're basically just pulling something out of the fridge or freezer and reheating it. And that's a really easy option. Or utilize some super simple options like some bag salad mixes. Um, you can throw some protein into the air fryer and, um, you know, you can get some um, microwavable rice or something like that. Just some really quick, convenient, healthy options from the shops as well. But the more you plan for your Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the better you will stay on track. Like I was saying at the beginning, structure and routine and planning is 
everything when it comes to success. If you just wing Friday night or wing it for the weekend, things aren't really going to go to plan because you don't have that structure. You haven't, you haven't taken that step to plan out what's going to happen. And you're probably likely to default back to old behaviors and patterns of behavior where of course, ordering Uber Eats or just stopping through the drive-thru on the way home is going to be a much more easy and convenient option for you. So we really do want to think ahead on you know Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday to what's going to happen on Friday night and Saturday night in order to plan a little bit in advance to try and keep us on track. So again, I know this question was around motivation, but I hope that I've shown you that it's not just about motivation. Like motivation is not going to be there every day. We need to plan. We need to have a direction. We need to have a purpose. We need to have some structure. We need to know what's going on before we hit exhaustion mode on Friday afternoon. We want to have a list on the fridge that says, Hey, busy mom, you did a great job. Smash it, babe. Grab out that, you know, casserole that you made on a Monday night from the freezer and reheat it up. Your kids and your body will thank you for it. And you'll, you'll wake up bouncing with energy on a Saturday morning. So if you need to leave little notes for yourself around the house that helps you stay accountable and motivated, um, do that because it, it's, it's only going to help you and your family live a healthy lifestyle, which you'll feel so much better for long-term. So Goals, planning, direction, purpose, structure. They're the things that busy mums or busy people really want at the end of the week in order to help them stay on track and live a healthy lifestyle long term. That brings us to the end of the second part of the Q&A episode. If you guys enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate if you could leave me a positive rating or review in the Purple Apple podcast app. Um, These ratings and reviews really do mean so much to me. I love reading every single one of them. And if you enjoy these Q&A episodes, please let me know. Or if you would prefer the episodes where I interview um, experts all around the world, if you prefer them more, again, please let me know. And I'll aim to get more experts onto the podcast to share their knowledge with you guys as well. I will catch you in the next podcast episode, guys.